good to start with God's Word as we look to God's Word. So if you have a Bible again, I want to invite you to go to 1 Timothy chapter 4 with me this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 11 to 16, and I pray that you will be able to make this connection because this will be one of the more difficult sermons for me to preach because in some respects, this passage, this sermon is me preaching to myself about myself and about the elders of this church. But Lord willing, you will see how we as a greater church have to bring this together in personal application as well. So for those that are our friends and our gifts and our, our friends and guests, sorry, and our visitors, today is January the 24th of 2016. Debbie and I and our family, and this was one of those special days when all of our family is here. Our oldest son, Brandon, came back for my birthday, surprised me, uh, landing in from Regina on my birthday. And so we've had our whole family back together, and it's been a, lot, a really fun week together. And I get to go to my in-laws and have turkey dinner this afternoon, which I just realized is not probably the best thing to have when you're going to see the heart specialist tomorrow. Um, my blood will probably be like gravy, but uh, anyway... Uh, it's been good, and believe it or not, today represents our first year anniversary in the sense, in the last couple of weeks, we've been here now for one year and 11 days. That's what we've been here for, one year and 11 days. On the 13th of January, we celebrated our first year anniversary of our new church family, Calvary Baptist Church. And to be honest, a new pastorate can be, and usually is, difficult. It can be. Even when the congregation has given you a solid call, which this church did, and we were humbled and blessed by it, even though you sense that this is God's call on your life, and we did. Debbie and I are convinced this is what God called us to do. But when you are still somewhat young, and yes, I am somewhat young, all right, although John Dean, <laughs> you knew I was going to bring it up. We were at a restaurant on my birthday, asked the waitress who was the youngest one in the, at the table and the oldest one at the table, and he was at the table, and she said, I was the oldest one at the table. <laughs> now, we were close. She did think I was 35 and that he was 33, and she did admit it was because I have gray hair, all right? But it is, you know, when, when you're younger and you're somewhat unknown, many of you know of me, but almost none of you really know me or knew me, the change to a new pastorate is especially difficult. And to be honest, in full disclosure to you as we look to this passage, I have battled in the last 370 days insecure feelings at times. I've been very insecure coming here week in and week out, sometimes standing in front of a sea of pleasantly inscrutable faces that you really don't know. You know of, but you don't know. And you wonder, what is it going to really be like? Will they accept you? Will we click? Will they like your style of preaching? And will you be able to lead them? And will you last? for six months or a year. And it was ironic because someone here in the church knew that it was our one-year anniversary and called me in my office and asked me, how do you feel about your first year? And one of my comments was, well, I'm so thankful that I'm still here. And it was funny because that comment made us both react in different ways because the person said, why, are you thinking of leaving? And, and my thought was, no, I'm glad I'm still here because you haven't gotten rid of me yet, okay? So we came at this from opposite ends of the spectrum. 
But now I want you to think about Timothy, who is in his mid to upper 30s, and he's been sent by the great apostle Paul to go to one of the most well-known churches of the first century, the church at Ephesus, okay? And I think what I have felt this year is probably a little what Timothy felt like. Timothy was young in first century standards. He was shy. He was timid. He had some stomach issues. And, of course, he wasn't Paul. And he was supposed to lead, and he was, supposed, he was supposed to evoke change. And it might surprise you what the answer from Paul was in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. But as you see this, I've titled my sermon this morning, What a Pastor Should See When He Looks in the Mirror. And I want you to hold up that mirror because I need to look into it, and I want you to be with me as I look into it. Now, having a mirror... Or what do you see when you look in a mirror? Now, if I had you all write that down, I'd probably get a lot of different answers of what you see when you look in a mirror. And often we associate looking in a mirror with vanity and pride. Like, come on, now be honest, all right? You've all been to the mall and you've seen that person who seems to find every mirror available. You've all been, if you've been to any kind of a gym or worked out, you know the difference between the one who really is only there to shed a few pounds and the one who loves what they look like because they just love to gaze in front of the mirror. And, and especially, you know, the guys that are, you know, they're doing one of these things and they're all like this and like, you know, but they're trying to act like they're not doing it and you can spot it a mile away, right? But you all have seen that. But let's be honest, a mirror is by no means all bad. Think of the things that having a mirror is good for. Um, ladies, for smudged makeup. That's a good thing, right? right? Uh, how about having bad hair? It is good to have a mirror if you have bad hair. I won't get into if you have no hair, okay? Even then, you might want a mirror. What about if you have food in your teeth or ladies' lipstick on your teeth? How about buttons not done up or there's a hole somewhere where you most definitely don't want an open hole? What about men having this? And this is a nightmare for every pastor or guy who speaks in public to make sure your zipper is done up. Okay. All right. We look at mirrors every day. We look at them every day. In fact, if you are married or your parents, you get this. Men, how many men? And you don't have to put up your hand because I don't want you to be in trouble. Have you have heard this maybe from your significant other? Did you even look at a mirror before you decided to walk out of the house like that? How many times have kids heard the same thing? And let's be honest, since I'm picking on the mall, how many times have we all been at the mall and seen someone young or old where we thought to ourselves, a mirror would really help that person? Or how did they leave the house? And how many times have you said to, has said to yourself or said to your friend, tell me that person didn't leave having looked at themselves like that in a mirror and still went out in public? And I can tell by the smiles on your faces and the subtle nodding of the head, depending on your bravery, that you all can relate to what I'm saying. Now, here's my question then, as we all relate to mirrors, why do we do just that spiritually? How many of us look into the mirror of God's word and still leave and forget what we saw? James, who was inspired of God and wrote the definitive passage on this in James chapter 1, verse 19, James said this, Know this, my beloved brothers, 
let every person, not some, not most, let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger. Now, think about that. Would you and I be known as someone who is quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger? James goes on, he says, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I just ordered a book called Uprooting Anger that was recommended to me by my very best male friend, uh, Pastor Herb Hunter, that many of you have met. And Herb told me this was the best book he's read on anger. So I ordered it immediately, and I'm starting it tomorrow in my devotions, and I hope to read it, and I'll give you an update on it. But I was surprised because one of the chapters says exactly this, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And because of this, he says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And here's the thing, here's the mirror part. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, here's the illustration. He is like a man or a woman who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. And that's not a passing glance. This is James saying someone who really steers and gets up close to the mirror and realizes all the blemishes and all the flaws and all the unevenness and realizes that one ear is taller than the other one and one lobe is bigger than the other one. And you realize the eyebrows aren't even and there's stuff growing out of the nostrils and stuff out out of the ears and you see it all for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like but the one who looks into the perfect law the law of liberty see how James describes the word of God it's perfect and it's the law of liberty it's not the law of bondage it's the law of liberty and perseveres stays at it doesn't quit goes back and looks in the mirror again being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. Notice this. He or she will be blessed in his or her doing. We're going to look into the mirror of God's word, and I need your help because this passage is really about me looking into the word of God. And we're going to see what a pastor should see, which in turn does bear a responsibility to you, the church. Now, we are coming to the end of 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we have finished up the largest portion of this letter from Paul to Timothy. And I want you to think about all that he said. He charged Timothy to go to Ephesus and to confront false teachers, to show them what, what right doctrine is to teach the church how to have good prayer times and ta taught them what the church's vision of mission should look like. Then in chapters 2 and chapter 3, we see what God says about men and about women, about their roles and their value and their calling. We've celebrated the gospel in chapter 1 and the end of chapter 3. We've been warned again in the first part of chapter 4 of false teachers and given a plan for how to live our personal daily lives and our church corporate lives. But in verses 11 to 16 of 1 Timothy chapter 4, God gets, or sorry, Paul gets very personal with Timothy himself. Because Paul knows the task ahead will be hard. He knows that Timothy is going to face opposition. And in fact, in Timothy's life, he may even face persecution. So Timothy, this young 
mid-30s guy who is timid and for sure perhaps feeling a little overwhelmed, underqualified, and likely overmatched for the task at hand. Not to mention, he's supposed to go to this church and preach and teach and expose and change and reestablish and reorganize and refocus, and this is the church at Ephesus. In the book of Acts, we find out that all of Asia was brought to Christ by the church of, Asia, of, of Ephesus. It was a powerful, popular, famous, well-established church, and you've got the newbie going, and he's supposed to reorganize it and reshuffle the deck. Oh, and by the way, he's not Paul. So let's look at 1 Timothy 4, 11 to 16, where Paul writes to Timothy, and notice right out of the gates, command and teach these things. Command and teach these things. If you write in your Bible, highlight or underline the words, these things, because that's going to come up again, these things. He says to Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Five things. Until I come, Timothy, until I come and meet you or you meet me, until we're back together, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Timothy, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Timothy, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, Timothy. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and all of your hearers. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. So very quickly, let's do a mirror check this morning. And so the first mirror check is the mirror check for mission. There's the mirror check for mission. Paul starts out in verse 11 with a simple mission. Command and teach these things. And then he expands on it in verse 13, right? When he tells Timothy his mission at the church, which is, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. This is your mission. J.C. Ryle said, it takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian. It takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian. Now, let's analyze some of the words in that passage. The first word is the word command. This is interesting. In the Greek, if you're really going to do a one-for-one into English, it means prescribe. It means prescribe. Uh, So think about prescription. I have to go to the doctor tomorrow. And when I went to see my GP, Dr. Watson, I went and saw her, and she took my blood pressure, and she got me to get some blood work done, and she prescribed medication. Now, she didn't write it on that little white pad and pass it to me and said, here's some food for thought. She didn't give it to me and say, well, give this some, some thought, and if you want to, you could try out these drugs. No, when she wrote it and she gave it to me, the expectation was, you will go get this, and you will take it, in the prescribed manner, I have told you to do it. That's what a doctor does. He or she prescribes medication. They tell you what you need. So Paul is telling Timothy, go, come and prescribe the word of God to the church at Ephesus. And then he says, teach, teach. And that word means to pass on truth. 
So prescribe the truth and pass on the truth. So now you're seeing why, I hope you see, why I'm so passionate about getting us, all of us, every man and woman from the youngest to whoever the oldest is, to get us into God's word. God didn't call Timothy to make suggestions. George Whitfield in the 1700s said this, God has condescended to become an author, and yet people will not read his writings. It is amazing to me how many people, if I walked out and up and down the city of St. John's and said, is this God's word? Many people will say, yep. Have you read it? Nope. The tragedy is that's true in a lot of churches. A worse tragedy would be, is that true here? This is God's word. I can't believe that George Whitfield said this in the mid-1700s. And so not only is Timothy to command and teach, but he is to devote himself to the word of God, to reading it and exhorting people about it and teaching people the word of God. John MacArthur puts it like this. I love the way he puts it. He says, Paul's command to Timothy contrasts sharply with much contemporary preaching. Preaching in our day is often intriguing, but seldom commanding. Preaching in our day is often entertaining, but seldom convicting. Preaching in our day is often popular, but seldom powerful. It's often interesting, but less often transforming. See, Paul does not ask Timothy to share or make suggestions to his congregation. And so what exactly is Timothy to be commanding and teaching and exhorting by reading of the Word of God? Notice it's those two words, these things. Now, these things shows up seven times in 1 Timothy. Seven times Paul says, Timothy, teach these things, flee these things, remember these things. It started back in chapter 3 when Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these, these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So what are these things when he told them how to confront the false teachers and how to bring the church to prayer and how to celebrate the gospel? Then in chapter 4, verse 6, which we looked at two weeks ago, if you put these things before the brothers, what are those things? It's verses 1 to 5. Here's what false teachers look like. Here's what their MO is. This is their message. This is how you know who they are. This is the effects that it has. Timothy, put these things before the brothers and sisters. If you do, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, which is why we said let's be a good church this year, not a great church. Let's not strive for greatness. Only God is great. Let us be good servants. Next, we have it in our passage in verse 11. Next, it's verse 15, which we've read. If you turn over in chapter 5, verse 7, Paul writes, command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. In this case, it's that we're supposed to be compassionate for each other. It's families are supposed to take care of each other. We're going to look at that over the next couple of weeks. In chapter 6, verse 2, he says, teach and urge these things. And then he's talking there about money and all that type of stuff. And finally, in verse 11 of chapter 6, he says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. And that comes just after he says, The love of money is the root of all evil. And he says, Timothy, flee these things. So these are the these things. Everything God commanded Timothy to be, he was to command others to be. So that's the application for you, church. When I look into the mirror of God's word, 
and I look and what it shows back and says, Steve, be this, Steve, be this, then my job is to turn around and say, church, be this, be that. Everything that Timothy is commanded to be, he was to command others to be. Timothy was called upon to stay on mission, to get the church at Ephesus on mission. And so what's our mission? What's our mission in 2016 in St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador? The Bible, prayer, evangelism, godly living, and proper order in the church. Yes, 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 and yes. Amen? Praise Jesus for Mary. Amen. But most importantly, it's to know Jesus. That's most important to know Jesus personally and relationally. I want you to think of what Paul has already said about Jesus in this letter. Go back to chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. If you have your Bible, go back to chapter 1. Look at what Paul says about Jesus in chapter 1. He says, This saying is trustworthy in verse 15, and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I am the worst of sinners, and Jesus still saved me. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, as the worst of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. And then he says, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever, amen. Look at the way he ends chapter 3. In chapter 3, he says, Jesus was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. This is the Jesus that you and I are called to know. Now, 1 Timothy, I'll be the first one to admit to you, church, 1 Timothy is a list of do's and don'ts. It really is. It's do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. And Paul has already said that. If you go to the book of Galatians, that letter, it's a list of don't adds. It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Don't add, don't add. But it's always about Jesus. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, what does Paul say? I have been crucified with my King James Bible? No. Or with whatever Bible of, for reference is your favorite. I have been crucified with my denomination. That's not what it says. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the power of Jesus Christ who lives in me and has control over me. Because Paul is basically, I know Jesus do you know Jesus? And does it get you excited? I don't care if you're introverted or extroverted. If you know Je if you know the best there is to know, that excites you. It really does. And it all comes with this sense of command because God is our Father and Jesus Christ is both our Savior and our Redeemer, but He's also our Lord. Jesus tells us what sin is. We learned about this in our New City Catechism. He tells us what right is, and he tells us what holiness is. He tells us what right living versus wrong living looks like. And when he tells us, he tells us as the authoritative, powerful, glorifying, honoring, and blessing God that he is. But you realize that Satan has a little knack for this stuff, church. He will come to you, and he'll try to get you to focus on all the power and never on the protection. He will come to you and try to get you to focus on the thou shalt's and never on the thou hasts. 
Because remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians or in, in Donald Trump, 2 Corinthians? All right? In 2 Corinthians 1.20, as Donald puts it, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. Now, can you say amen to that? There you go. Mary, lead the way. All right? All of the promises of God. Yes, God might say, don't do this and do this. But remember, all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That's why my favorite psalm is Psalm 119. Oh, how I wish I could get everybody to read Psalm 119 at least once a week. Just a sample of it. 176 verses. Nothing to, nothing to read. I will praise you with an upright heart. And I will learn your righteous rules. The writer says, I have stored up your word in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Then he says, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word and open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. The Bible that I use for my personal devotions at home. I had CBD uh, inscribe that verse on the cover of my Bible so that every time I pick it up, and I go to read it, I'm reminded to say before I read, oh God, open my eyes that I can see wonderful things out of your law. Richard Baxter said it this way, Timothy was to screw the truth into men's minds. That's what he was doing. That was, that's what his mission was. Next, it was the mirror check of leadership. So there was the mirror check of mission, but then there's the mirror check. It's Timothy, look into the mirror and see your leadership. Paul tells Timothy about his leadership. Notice what he says in verse 12. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example. Then down in verse 14, notice what he says. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Folks, listen, I, I'm going to tell you this. Even in a church this size, and I've been blessed. I've attended a church of 3,000. I've pastored a church of 300, and now I pastor this church. But I will tell you, in every kind of thing and every kind of leadership, leadership is hard. Leadership can be scary. It is often lonely and can very often be thankless and sometimes even life-threatening. That's the nature of leadership. And tragically, as we've already seen, there are those who crave leadership and all they crave is power and glory. But when you apply to those types of leaders, when you apply the pressure or you require self-sacrifice, they take off. And I'm always reminded, whenever I think about what it means to be a leader in a church, I've told you this, I've had the glorious privilege of going to Israel. And one of the most emotional times for me was when I went to the Golden Heights and I visited the war memorial of the seven-day war. And our tour guide reminded me to look at the names listed of all those that died in the seven-day war. And you will not see privates. You will not see the names of first lieutenants. You will see the names of captains and colonels and generals 
Because when the war started and all this barbed wire had been spewed out, these men went, these captains and these generals and these colonels, they went and they threw their bodies over the barbed wire and told their soldiers, crawl over us to go fight the war. And literally, they were trampled to death by their own men, letting their men go and fight the war. That's the kind of pastors God wants his church to have, the elders, men that are willing to be trampled to death for the glory of God. That sacrifice, in fact, on Facebook, if you're a great disciple of Facebook, there's been a little viral video of two Chinese kids, a brother and a sister. Have you seen this one where they're trying to get across this thing and the little boy can get because he's taller and the little girl can't. So he finally lays down and spans the gap and lets his sister walk over him to the other side. And the caption says, this is what true brotherly love looks like. Folks, that should be normal and regular in the church. That should be normal. That should not need to be celebrated. That should be like, well, yeah, that's what we do as Christians. That's what elders are supposed to do. It's what pastors are supposed to do. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, if you can do anything else, go do it. If you can go, any, go do anything else, go do it. Don't be a pastor. Don't be an elder. Leadership is hard. Don't you think that Paul might have had in mind when he tells Timothy this? Don't neglect this, that he was thinking about John Mark, that young apprentice who got saved and said, I want to go be a pastor. And he got out there, and once the going got tough, he split and we know it's not until 2 Timothy, 30 years later, that Paul can finally say, yeah, John Mark is worthy. What about, was he thinking about Demas? That in 2 Timothy, at the end of it, Paul would say, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. But if you read the ends of Philippians and Galatians and Colossians, Demas' name shows up. And Brother John, thank you for letting me be your, the whipping horse of letting you say all those beautiful names in Romans 16. I tell you, Dad told me, don't get older if I don't get smarter. So I gave it to somebody else to read. So that was, thank you, Brother John, for that. All right? But leadership is hard. Paul reminds Timothy of his calling. He says it comes from God and it comes from the church. Listen to Paul himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16. He says, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. Paul says, I, I can't boast because I'm a preacher. For necessity is laid on me. He goes, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul would say, listen, I would feel more pressure and guilt and condemnation if I didn't preach than if I do. But he says, I discipline my body and I keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is what leadership looks like. And so Paul challenges Timothy, don't give up, don't quit, don't look back. And then Paul reminds him why he shouldn't be. He says, don't neglect the gift you have. So basically Paul says, Timothy, you're saved, boy. You are saved. You're a gift. You've received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, you are called. You are called. This prophecy has been made about you. And he says, you are church affirmed. Now, what does that look like in 21st century St. John's Newfoundland? John MacArthur puts it like this. In our day, God's call comes not through special revelation because we've got the completed word of God, but through providence. If God wants a man in the ministry, he'll give him that desire and open a door of opportunity for him. And in this church, we're blessed. We have myself and Paul and Daniel and Jeff and Steve. And we've got guys like John Hancock that is feeling God's call and Wu is wrestling through God's call in his life. And I don't know if there's other men in this church that are saying, God, are you calling me to ministry? Are you calling me to give up everything and just chase you into ministry? 
Timothy was to remember who he belongs to, who created him, who saved him, who called him, who he's accountable to. But even further, he's to remember that God has also made him a part of the church body. So Paul is saying, Timothy, your calling comes from God, but it's affirmed by the church. Remember in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we learned that a pastor, an elder, an overseer is a servant leader. It's knowing who you lead, but also who you report to. In Hebrews 13, what does the writer of Hebrews say? That you are to obey or submit to your elders. Why? Not because they're in charge, but because they will give an account to God for your souls. Charles Spurgeon said if a pastor dwelt on that verse too often, he would lose his mind. And the older I get, the more real that statement gets. The gravity that I, that we as elders, will one day report to God for the souls of every man and woman who make up the church at Calvary Baptist Church. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 3 and 5, right, to shepherd the flock. But notice verse 15 in leadership. Paul says to Timothy, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. And so for all elders and pastors, this is some good news. Because the word practice, the Greek word means to think through. It means planning or strategizing or premeditating. So in other words, when you're not involved in ministry, the good minister is still preparing and praying or planning for ministry. And that is done in private, but known publicly. And if you want to know about the role of a pastor, you want to write that down, listen to that. So Paul says, do things in private, but let it be known publicly. And what I mean is, let people know that when you're in private, you are in God's word. You are on your knees. You are in prayer. Calvary, I want you to know I don't pray for you in terms of, Father God, be with Calvary Baptist Church today. There's many a day I sit right there and I look at these chairs and I try to remember where you've sat and I pray for you by name. And I ask God to be near you and with you, to convict you and to encourage you, to let you know you're loved and chased after. And I ask God to create a place of safety here in this church. This is what Timothy's supposed to do. And notice he says, so that all may see your progress. And this is why I love this. This is my favorite part. Again, I'm quoting John MacArthur. He says, lest anyone think that a man must be flawless to be a servant of God. Because if that's the case, I'm out. I'm out. He says this. No minister, Paul mentions the necessity of spiritual progress. No minister is yet all that he should be. I love that old, old song I learned as a kid. He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. Right? He's still working on me. He goes on, he says, a spiritual leader must not try to hide his flaws from his people, but rather allow them to see his progress in spiritual knowledge, in wisdom and maturity. Even the apostle Paul admitted he needed to grow in grace. My favorite verses of the Bible, my life verses, Brother John, you quoted these at your baptism. This is my testimony in scripture in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14, where Paul says, not that I have already attained it, I haven't arrived. He says, or I've already become perfect. Paul is, Paul is saying, I am not perfect. 
He says, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that which was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Now get that. Paul is saying, I cling to Jesus because he clings to me. And you'll notice that it was Jesus who did the clinging first. I was falling and Jesus grabbed me. And then Paul says, I'm hanging on. But Jesus will never let you go. He will never let you go. And notice what he says, brethren, church, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And Paul tells Timothy, immerse yourself in that and let people see how you're not perfect, but how you chase the one who is perfect. And so in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, Paul commanded him to preach the word and to be ready in season and out of season when it's convenient and when it's not. The servant of Jesus Christ is never off duty. And so Timothy was to challenge and persuade and command and charge and reprove and rebuke and exhort and instruct, but always with love and patience. And that's why Paul says what he does next, because then we've got the mirror check for character very quickly. Basically, if I can, in military terms, Paul says to Timothy, Ten Hut, report for duty, son. He says, listen, you're a soldier. You've been given a mission. You've been given authority and representation, and your authority comes from your representation. So he says, Timothy, be an example. What that means is be a model. Be someone that folks can look to, not in order to see Timothy, but to see God. Not to see your perfection, but the work of the perfect Christ in you, the Holy Spirit at work in you. So he says to him, gives him five things in speech. So basically in what he says and how he says it. Remember, Solomon said in Proverbs 17, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise when he closes his lips and he's deemed intelligent. Now, the world has a statement for that, right? Better for you to know a fool, you're a fool than to open your mouth and prove it. They're just stealing from the Bible, by the way, whoever said that. In Proverbs 16, Solomon says, The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. James we've heard of, but Paul sums up all of this right here in in 1 Timothy 4 in the book of Ephesians. I don't have time right now, but read Ephesians 4 and 5 today, especially the first five verses and the last 10 of 4 and the first three of 5. Because he says in life, how he lives and why he lives it, in love, in what he loves and why he loves, in faith, in the object of his trust, in purity, he is not double-minded and he doesn't have ulterior motives. He says, Paul, be an example. Be someone that someone that people can look up to in this. And then finally, he says, there's the mirror check of spiritual influence. Notice the way he finishes in our passage, 11 to 16. He says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Timothy needs to be aware of his character and his calling. His character and his calling. This makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, really, when you think about it, doesn't that make sense? When you consider all that Paul's been saying and warning about since the beginning of this thing, Timothy must be careful on both his behavior and his teaching. If he fails in either one, he fails in ministry. See, a true man of God will concentrate totally on personal holiness and public instruction. 
Matthew Henry, the old pastor, said this, those who teach by their doctrine must teach by their life, else they pull down with one hand what they build up with the other. Solomon said, beware of pride and beware of self-confidence. He said in Proverbs, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 29, 23 says, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. And James, that wisdom book of the New Testament in James chapter 4, verse 6 says this, but he gives more grace, grace. therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So Timothy is to keep watch on himself and also on what he teaches. And that fascinates me. It really does. Because he can't let his guard down on either front. He, he, when it comes to his character, he's got to watch for pride or it will overcome him or overconfidence because that'll sit in. But he also can't let his guard down as it relates to doctrine for exactly the same reasons. Because he says, persist in this at the end of verse 16, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, we've heard that verse before. If you really want to unpack 1 Timothy, you've heard that back in chapter 2, verse 15, when Timothy told, Paul tells Timothy to tell women that women will be saved in childbearing, and yet not just themselves, but others as well. It's almost exactly the same sentence. In fact, if you look at what seems to be difficult in 2.15, it becomes very clear in 4.16. Here it is. If Timothy does what God has called him to do, then he will see and experience the effects of obeying, trusting, and following God, and perseverance always leads to God's blessings. So, God is consistently saying this, men, do what God has called you to, created you to be, gifted you to be, and you will be blessed as well as those around you. Ladies, do what God has called you to do, created you to be, gifted you to be, and you will be blessed as well as those around you. Elders, Pastors, do what God has called you to do, gifted you to be, and you will be blessed as well as those around you. One commentator puts it like this, Christian leaders are to watch both their lives and their doctrine closely. That life is the life of Christ. And that doctrine is Jesus Christ himself. We have no creed but Christ. To substitute other creeds by demanding that people cave into them for salvation is to make the cross of Christ null and void, right? There you go. Yeah, your head's nod. So the practical question then is this, and then I'm going to close. Isn't it time that Christians knock down the walls that divide them? And isn't it time that Christ and only Christ be the gospel that saves us? Amen. Thank God for Mary. I'm so glad you're back. You see, in full disclosure, I grew up in a world with all kinds of different restrictions. I grew up in a world with all kinds of things, restrictions concerning activities that I was told prevented people from being saved. I grew up in a world which said you didn't go to a, a place and play pool because that might mean you're not saved. I grew up in a place where you couldn't do any work on Sunday. You slept and did nothing because people who did things on Sunday likely were not saved. I grew up in a world where you didn't go to movies because unsaved people go to movies. And today we expand our own restrictions from the kind of dress one can or cannot wear, the length of your hair, whether a man can or can't have or a woman can or can't have tattoos or whether you socially drink or what day of the week you worship on or whether or not you attend service every time the lights are on and the doors are open. 
what kind of mu music you listen to or have sung, whether or not musical instruments should be used in a church service, how often one takes the Lord's Supper, what's your millennial position, what you should think about the action of the Holy Spirit, and the list goes on and on and on and on. And here's what I say to that. <laughs> and as John just finished up reading Romans, the above things that I've just said, all of them actually can be good. And there can be good reasons for you to do them or not to do them. But the value that you will place on them and how you impose them can lead you slowly and subtly off course. It can. I read about this this week in my studies. A few years back, there was a mid-air collision in the Los Angeles area where a pilot of a private jet with his family caught, went off course and flew into a jetliner full of people. And the pilot, the, the, the subject of the investigation was what distracted the pilot. He was busy flying his private plane. We found out that he was an executive. And so the respect, was he busy thinking about business decisions? Was he maybe talking to his wife and his daughter who were with him on the plane? Maybe they were making plans for their outing because they were flying up into the mountains where their summer home was. He was busy doing good things. He was busy doing important things. But he strayed off course, and he wandered into an area where he should not have been. See, Christians do the same thing. When we get busy specializing in what we consider to be good things or important issues or pet doctrines, and we take our eyes off the central focus point, Jesus, and we stray off course, and we get into areas where we should not be, and disaster strikes. And so Timothy, me, us, we are called to be consumed and obsessed and doggedly unapologetic as we focus on Jesus Christ and his word to know it and teach it and preach it, to learn it, love it, and live it. And in so doing, I and we will become more and more like Christ. And in so doing, even our flaws and our sin and our failures and our struggles, we won't hide them. We won't pretend we don't have them. We won't run from them, but instead we'll run to, we'll come out into the light of God's word and you will find and discover that repentance leads to forgiveness and forgiveness to restoration and restoration to freedom and freedom is because you find mercy and grace and then you get peace and you find joy and no, nothing that the world offers can meet, match that and so what will you do with this passage church we've all seen what God is saying to me and to Paul and to Daniel and Jeff and Steve in some ways, he's saying this to John and to Wu and maybe others. But let me say this. When Paul is speaking directly to Timothy, all Scripture is for all of us. So here's my ending questions. Where are you with your walk with God? Where are you in your walk with God? Honestly. Don't pretend. The hardest thing you'll ever do in life is be honest with yourself. Can I ask this in light of this passage as you've looked into the mirror with me? And I need you to look into the mirror with me and sometimes you're going to see things that I don't see. Will you pray for me and your elders? And I don't mean fly-by shooting prayers. I mean, will you cry out to God for us? Will you listen to me and your elders? Not in my opinions. Will you listen to us as we preach God's word, as we command and teach and will you support and join me and your elders as we live on mission, as we live out God's authority, 
as we check our lives in regards to our character and we seek to influence you like Christ. So church, will we live like Jesus? And if you're here today and you're like, man, Steve, dude, you are wound up. Like you really take this stuff seriously, man. Maybe you should just chill. You might be saying, listen, do you really think God is this real? Then I would say to you, I want you to know that Jesus is actually the chief shepherd of Calvary Baptist Church. Jesus is the lead elder. He's the true pastor. He's the real head of this church, of me and of us. Jesus is the friend of sinners, the savior of the world, the Lord and redeemer of the redeemed. And we humans often complicate simple things. So may I suggest if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, use the kiss method which is not keep it simple, stupid. It's this, keep it scripturally simple. Let the Bible simply say what it does and then obey it. And when we do, we will sing Hosanna. Let's bow in prayer. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity to declare your word. And again, my Savior, I pray that my friends, my family, my church family, the sons and daughter that you have blessed Debbie and I with who know me better sometimes than I know myself. Lord, that we and I can show this church, my friends and family, that there is nothing to fear by looking into God's word and simply to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow you because you are better than anything. So Lord, help us to have no more excuses but to follow you and to lift up our voices and praise you with Hosanna. I pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.